More than 30 million people, which is about 15% of the country's population, have been affected by the deluge. The rainfall has been almost three times higher than the national 30-year average. The sheer enormity of the scale of destruction, damage and death is overwhelming. It's a disaster and more than half of Pakistan is underwater. Pakistan is the sixth most populated country in the world. It has more than 200 million people, and millions of them have been displaced. Victims of catastrophic flooding, which has wreaked havoc on the nation's economy, food supplies, housing, and infrastructure. Record monsoon rains and melting glaciers in northern mountains have triggered floods that have killed at least 1,208 people, including... 416 children. I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, Reuters Pakistan correspondent Charlotte Greenfield and Pakistani New Zealander Tabor Khan on why these floods have been so severe and the impact they've had on the country which, with its topography and fairly limited infrastructure, is already bearing the brunt of climate change. So one-third of the country is underwater. Tabor Khan was born in Pakistan, but left the country when she was a baby. She still has family living there. In terms of size, I think that's very hard for us to imagine what that could look like as New Zealanders, given the scale of the land. But if you imagine a piece of land bigger than Poland, more people than in the UK that have actually been affected by something like this. Um, so it's a significant part of the Pakistani population that has been affected by the flooding. Uh, we are estimating anywhere between 30 million to about 40 million. You know, the estimates are obviously off, um, so we don't really know how many actual pe- number of people have been affected, but that's the roundabout figure. The scale of this strategy is what's making it so difficult and stretching our resources and capacity to cope. With so many different areas affected all at once, it's really stretching our uh, resources, our relief, uh, even our human resources capacity. Yeah. Uh, our infrastructure also be, has been heavily damaged, which is also affecting uh, connectivity, and our our supply of relief goods is just not meeting the demand. You were born in Pakistan, but you moved over to New Zealand when you were a baby. But do you do you have family still over there who are affected? Yeah, I, I have. Um, I have lots of family there, and then I have family who have been affected because of where they live, which is the Sindh province, and specifically Sakhar. You know, Sakhar is often defined as a city because I think it's defined as a city because of its population size. But I would, um, it's underdeveloped and it's more a town than it is a city. And so my family that lives in Sakhar has been most affected with these floods, um, where they've had to obviously just kind of wait for the water to to move out. And I know up until two days ago, there was still water in the vicinity of, of the area that they live in, so the suburb of Sakhar that they reside in, which has meant that, you know, so we've got elders in our family. Um, we live in a collective family structure who've had to obviously stay on the top floors uh, so that um, they're not going down into the water to be able to get things that they might need on a day-to-day basis. Somebody else in the family has been supporting with that. Their businesses have had to be closed. So income has been affected. And with the inflation in Pakistan right now, which is insane, Consumer prices were up by 24.9% year-on-year in July. 
The floods have taken over thousands of lives and the cost of damages incurred is expected to exceed $10 billion. It is really important to continue to work to be able to provide for your family. Uh, and so that's just adding to the stresses that already exist in life. There's definitely a lot of uh, uh, work being done on this by climate scientists, as I understand it. Charlotte Greenfield covers Pakistan and Afghanistan for Reuters. She also happens to be from New Zealand. But certainly what we do know is that Pakistan faced uh, extremely high temperatures, a series of heat waves, mainly in March, April and May. For neighbouring Pakistan, it was the hottest April in 61 years. And since then, the heat wave has remained relentless. Last weekend, a city in southern Pakistan recorded the highest temperature in South Asia so far this year, 51 degrees Celsius in Jacobabad. Life in the city is now dominated by attempts to cope with the heat. Yet, even under these brutal conditions, people need to keep working to survive. And now, of course, the country is facing very, very heavy extreme monsoons, which is causing the flooding. So whether the two are interlinked is something that scientists are looking at. But certainly with uh, rising global temperatures, you know, climate scientists have told us that that does lead to the chance of much heavier rains because a warmer atmosphere means that more moisture is held in the atmosphere. And so then it is obviously released in the form of heavy rains. The working theory here is that these floods are the confluence of several factors. As Charlotte says, earlier this year, Pakistan experienced a severe heat wave. This caused some of the country's many glaciers to melt millions of tonnes of water. There are over 7,000 in Pakistan. That's more than anywhere else outside the polar regions. But rising temperatures are causing increasing glacial melt, which in turn is causing flooding. The heat also brought more moisture into the atmosphere, causing rains to intensify during the monsoon season, which began in June. Climate change is increasing the intensity, the frequency and the duration of monsoon rainfalls. When did these floods really start in earnest and have things intensified in recent months? Yeah, so Pakistan, I mean, as you can imagine, it is a fairly big uh, country. So we have been seeing flooding in various areas for a few months. Probably June is where you would say it sort of started in uh, Balochistan. Remote communities in the southwestern province of Balochistan is among the hardest hit, where rain-related death toll has reached at least 130. According to the disaster agency, Balochistan, which shares its borders with Iran and Afghanistan, received 305% more rain than the annual average. It's a very large province, but quite sparsely populated compared to the rest of the country. So that, of course, raised some concerns, got some attention. And then things intensified a little more in July. The heavy rains continued. There are always monsoon rains at this time of year, and there is often some flooding. But the level of this and the way it just kept going on intensely every day, uh, from meteorologists and just locals and you know many parts of the country I've spoken to, was really surprising. Then in the past few weeks in August, was when um, it really seemed to uh, sort of hit a threshold where this mass, massive widespread flooding, you know, became absolutely impossible to ignore and, you know, had very extreme results where you now see about a third of the country underwater. 
I understand that you've been covering this from Islamabad. Give us a sense, what has it been like on the ground experiencing this? Yeah, I mean, Islamabad itself, in terms of the, you know, the actual weather when you look outside the window is is, is relatively normal. We had, you know, some, some rains you always do get at this time of year. It actually cools things down a little bit. So it can, in normal circumstances, be welcome. But I suppose there's, there's, there's two things that really bring it home. Uh, we do, of course, have teams out in the field, especially in Sindh, which is the worst affected. But even from Islamabad, for me, the things that bring it home are just two hours away um, in uh, Khyber Pachinko province, which is um, to a little to the north of the, of the country. You know, there's very, very severe flash floods that were going on. That's where, that, these are where a lot of the images where you just see a torrential sort of mass of water coming through and just knocking out buildings and, and bridges. Um, so it's quite scary to think that just two hours away from what feels like relative normality is just, you know, total chaos and, and a lot of suffering. The other thing I would say is that Islamabad, of course, as the capital is where a lot of the government responses centered and a lot of the sort of the UN and, and foreign embassies who might be giving aid are centered. So just sitting in on, you know, we, we had a briefing from the prime minister and his kind of key ministers on this. And, you know, just the, just the kind of level of sense of, of, of overwhelm. And I'm not sure I would call it panic. I mean, you know, they're obviously used to dealing with disasters and they're trying to be in control of the situation. But just the sense of being totally out, overwhelmed and all of government just being thrown at this um, crisis is, is very prevalent in the capital. For someone who, you know, is aware that something's going on in Pakistan but isn't really au fait necessarily with the severity of it, can, can you try to sort of communicate that, the, the, the deaths, the displacement, the effect on food supply and infrastructure and uncertainty? Like, how bad are things? Yeah, things things are pretty severe. Um, and part of the reason they are severe is, is the scale and that it's hitting um, so many different fronts, some of which you mentioned the theme that keeps coming through is there's almost a sense of overwhelm. There's almost a sense of there are no words to describe this because the scale is so extreme. So you have 33 million people estimated to be affected. You know, so that's people who have lost their homes or their homes are underwater, badly damaged, the had to move. One of the walls fell on my leg. I was stuck there and couldn't move for days. I've lost everything. I thought I was going to die. So, you know, I mean, you can imagine just from those numbers, you know, what a huge number of people that is. Uh, the deaths are high. They're, you know, more than a thousand. I believe it's about 1,300, 1,400. Um, quite a few of them, about a third, are sadly children. But as well as the deaths, there's real fears about the, the health situation. A lot of these people, particularly in Sindh province, where in some other areas, there was a lot of water that passed through, caused a lot of damage, kept going. But in much of Sindh, you have the water um, is not able to drain. It has nowhere to drain. There's still more water, which is coming down from the north. And of course, there are still rains going on. It is still monsoon season. So that people are just living underwater. Um, and that is obviously causing really unsanitary um, conditions. So there's real concerns. We're starting to see some early indicators if you talk to hospitals and health officials, but it's still hard to get a sense of, of, of what the scale might be and whether it might be able to be averted. But there's real concerns from the World Health Organization and doctors, 
that uh, there will also be a sort of health crisis. They see a lot of um, waterborne diseases and a lot of diseases like malaria and dengue kind of occurring. In terms of food, it has been particularly devastating. Um, you know, Pakistan had already been coping with multi-decade high inflation that was mostly linked to high food prices. Um, you know, this is a country where a lot of people live in poverty, live quite day to day. So as soon as food prices go up, even a small amount, um, that really uh, causes a lot of problems around, um, you know, food security for these families. So this was already the case. Now, um, you know, you have a lot of agricultural land has been very uh, badly damaged, a lot of crops very badly damaged, questions over whether the, you know, planting season for wheat is meant to start in a few weeks that probably, you know, may not be able to happen in many areas. So there's major concerns, you know, not just sort of this month, next month, but really for that sort of midterm, even going into next year, just on, you know, how people are going to feed themselves in, in the country. I think one place, um, you know, that might be interesting um, to discuss is, is the city of Jacobabad, which is in Sindh, in, in southern Pakistan. Um, and it is sort of known as the world's hottest city or one of the world's hottest cities. And we visited um, in May this year uh, during the heat wave. And it was very, very intense, <laughs> the heat. As you can imagine, it hit 51 degrees Celsius while we were there. Most people work on the farms that surround Jacobabad, exposing them to scorching heat. The city has high rates of poverty that leave its population of approximately 200,000 people vulnerable to the scorching temperatures. And a very, very dry heat as well. You know, all the riverbeds and canals had dried up. You know, the biggest issue was there was just not enough water. There's no water in the city. Health workers have raised concerns about the quality of drinking water in the city and the cost of bottled water is putting stress on families, forcing them to carefully ration it. Just a few months later, that city was um, you know, completely flooded. Parts of it are still underwater. Residents displaced by the floods in the southern Pakistani city are grappling with devastating loss. At least 19 people have died. More than 40,000 of Jacobabad's 200,000 people are living in temporary shelters. Mostly unsanitary, crowded schools like this one, with little food. And you have all of these problems, you know, that I was describing. A lot of, um, you know, children getting uh, sort of gastroenteritis conditions, being admitted to hospitals where there were heat stroke, emergency heat stroke wards. Now they're kind of dealing with this influx from the floods. Um, you know, the whole city is completely disrupted. Tens of thousands of people are living in sort of schools as temporary shelters, but they don't really have much access to food, clean water, medicine. You know, I spoke to one woman there who's a, a school teacher who her, her students, who are all girls, they were sort of fainting from heat a few months ago um, and often not able to come to school because of the heat. And now they can't come because the school is flooded and their families often have been badly affected. Their homes have been damaged. Um, in this woman's neighbourhood, a house collapsed about a week or two ago and um, a little boy who's about nine years old was killed inside. So I think, you know, a city like Jacobabad, um, you know, whilst no means the only city or the only area affected, it, it gives you a real picture of, of just the extremes um, that a lot of people in Pakistan are dealing with. 
the story hasn't really gotten that much tension in Aotearoa, certainly relative to the, to the scale of, of what's happening. Is that something that plays on your mind in, in any way? I've been reflecting on this a lot, and, and I think I don't want to see a world where we are competing for our suffering um, to be noticed, you know, because no one's suffering is more so or less so than another's. Um, I I just don't think we want to be thinking about people's suffering in that way. But um, saying that, we clearly have some deeply embedded inequities in how we care for what matters and what doesn't matter. And so if you look at the Ukraine crisis, for example, it matters and it matters to us because it economically matters to us. Then you compare that with Pakistan. Well, it doesn't matter to us because it economically holds very little weight for us. And I just don't think that that's a very good way of looking at what how we place ourselves globally as New Zealanders and what we do care about and what we don't care about. And that's that's how I, w- I think I'd want to look at it. So I would think if we as New Zealanders want to be really proud of who we are in this world, we need to be really aware of what's happening in the world based on the scale of what's happening. What's that like for you? You live in New Zealand, but you have ties and you have family back in Pakistan. To be watching and, and hearing about this unfolding, but life sort of carrying on as normal, certainly for the vast majority of people that that you would meet, is that an odd position for you to be in? I think most people who have migrated here would probably relate to me a lot more in terms of how hard it is to be living in two worlds. So it is hard that, you know, I have to live life like everything is great. And I was saying this to a friend just yesterday that I feel guilty, you know, that I am here and I live a very privileged life and I would probably never know what this feels like. But I have family members who are part of the same bloodstream as me who are now um, who are very different, um, who experience this uh, hardship on a daily basis, not to the scale, but certainly hardship that I could never imagine. And so that guilt is also something that's um, that, you know, I imagine other people can relate to if you've got a connection to a different part of the world. This has kind of been characterized in a way like a harbinger of things to come and the inequity of who will bear the effects of climate change, particularly early on in this picture. The idea being, you know, Pakistan is not a high emitter on a per capita basis, but because of its topography and its status as a developing country, countries like Pakistan are going to be disproportionately affected if these sorts of events happen more regularly and and grow in terms of extremity. Is this something that is, I don't know, being discussed in in Pakistan or or, or something that's in the public consciousness, I, I suppose? It is, actually. I mean, certainly when you get to the sort of leadership, officials, heads of NGOs, and obviously the government, uh, they're they're quite vocal about this. Um, the climate change minister, Sherry Rahman, she has been pointing out just the extent of, of that disproportionate impact on Pakistan. We all need to be mindful of the fact that the climate crisis is here and now. And clearly Pakistan is, because of its uh, geographical position rather, 
we are at the ground zero of, of the front line. We have the largest glaciers in the world, number of glaciers in the world outside the polar region, which are beginning to melt through no fault of our own at global warming. We are very, we are less than 1% of GHG emissions. You know, they often point out, you know, Pakistan is less than 1% of emissions globally, but is, you know, feeling really strong effects. You know, a lot of kind of analyses put Pakistan as among the most affected countries by climate change, you know, in the world. So there, there has been, you know, this has been sort of pointed out consistently. Um, you know, Sherry Rahman has said that a lot of the pledges that are being made in uh, multilateral forums by various countries aren't being fulfilled. We are calling for all UN agencies and humanitarian relief uh, uh, NGOs as well as the international okay. community to mobilize support. The way Pakistan is suffering and, and other nations, um, you know, you know, should give rise to a sort of a conversation over emissions targets, but also, you know, this idea of reparations. Pakistan's climate change minister has said industrialized countries must keep their promise to pay reparations to countries facing the consequences of global warming. Obviously, there is aid coming in and, you know, assistance coming into Pakistan. But, you know, whether that uh, conversation should move into more of a sort of reparations type space. And you, you actually do hear this from, you know, a lot of people kind of on the ground in these areas as well. Um, again, the school teacher who I mentioned in, in Jacob Abad, you know, she's sort of said to me, you know, many times, you know, it's so difficult. It's so hot. And then there's so much you know, flooding, you know, this is due to climate change. So it, it is definitely there in the background, I would say. There isn't really an end in sight to this story. The monsoon season is expected to continue for a few weeks at least. I asked Haber Khan whether she had any wider thoughts that might be useful for people listening to this podcast. Three things, Emil. The first is raising awareness when something like this is happening, being being aware that something like this is happening and the importance of that. That's not going to cost you. It's not going to take anything away from you. But for you to be well-read and well-informed and aware that this is happening is really important. The second being each and every single one of us really reflecting on the role we can play around climate change and being responsible global citizens as a result of it. Climate change isn't some sort of a concept that's so far removed and so overwhelming that we don't even want to think about it. Mm -hmm. It's actually it's actually our lifestyle and looking at changing that um, is our responsibility because the effects of it, somebody else gets to deal with as we can see in Pakistan. And third, as New Zealanders, I think we are privileged and we can play a role in supporting those who aren't. So really looking at what else we could do beyond financial aid, and that could be in the form of, you know, training and skill development um, in terms of natural disaster management for Pakistan, helping with the rebuild effort with Pakistan, upskilling their own people to be able to do that, supporting them to do that. We could be global leaders by responding in that way. And I think we should think about that. So I think those would be the three things I would say we can all sort of walk away with and see if we could possibly achieve that. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. 
The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chestman and produced by Mark Jennings and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Charlotte Greenfield and Tabor Khan. Matewa. <laughs>